So we're working through this uh, story about the, this character, Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is the figurehead, if you like. Uh, in fact, the opening verse talks about Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. They learned that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Now, obviously, Nehemiah is the figurehead. He, he's, if you like, the name against which all of this work is labeled. There's, there's countless other people, as we saw in uh, previous sections, a whole load of people are named, and those people are figurehead names for other people who are working with them. What we see is uh, a leader who has got a great team and a great team of teams working together with a common objective, and the success that we see is that at this point in our, in our narrative of Nehemiah, the walls are now completed, the job is not quite done, because as he says, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So we've got to a point in the story of Nehemiah where we're just about there. In a sense, this chapter talks about courage, courage in the face of opposition. Uh, uh, there are countless stories about courage in the face of opposition in, in our lifetime, in recent years, uh, and down through history. Nehemiah is representative of this. Uh, I was reading about different uh, stories of, of courage, and uh, the one jumped out at me. Some of you may know her name. Her name is Maya Angelou. She was one of the leaders in the civil rights movement uh, in America. She was, uh, worked alongside Martin Luther King uh, and various others in that great moment in history where rights were identified for all. How successful that has been, sadly, perhaps not as successful as it should be, and yet at the same time we see an incredible uh, commitment to courage in the face of adversity. She was sexually abused at the age of eight and was mute following that. In a real sense, everything was stacked against this woman, possibly being able to rise up uh, and be uh, so uh, significant in this movement, and yet she did. She died in 2014 at the age of 86, and her family said this, her family is extremely grateful that her ascension, it's a great, great word that, isn't it, that her, her ascension was not belabored by a loss of acuity or comprehension. She lived a life as a teacher, activist, artist, and human being. She was a warrior for equality, tolerance, and peace. What a great commitment that is. But she recognizes something very different. She talks about her own life and her own commitment to the civil rights movement, and she said this, says this, I found that I knew not only that there was a God, but that, that I was a child of God. When I understood that, when I comprehended that, more than that, when I internalized that, ingested that, I became courageous. I dared to do anything that was good. I dared to do things as distant from what seemed to be in my future. There's somebody who, 
by faith in God, by faith in Christ, it seems, she confronted what was all of the reasons why she would not be able to rise up, uh, and yet God, it seemed, worked through her so that she was significant in that movement. In a similar way, and in a, a real way, we see that Nehemiah is the prototype of that kind of work. What we see repeatedly through this is Nehemiah recognizes that the success of the outcome, the, the work that is going on, although he and his team and his team's team are the people who are lifting up the rocks, mixing the mortar, laying the stones in place, building the wall, he acknowledges that it is God who is doing the work. Now, on the one hand, that's a great sense of comfort, isn't it? It's a great comfort to know that it is God who is doing this work. And then in another sense, for us today, in adversities that we face, in the challenge of the spiritual warfare that we are continuously engaged in as believers in Jesus Christ, there is a reminder to us that day to day, the ability for us to, in a sense, metaphorically, uh, pick up the trowel again, mix some more mortar, lay another stone in place, continue the work of building, is not in our strength. But it is God who is working in us to do that which he pleases to do. And that is why we are sustained. That is why we continue. You look on the, from the outside, maybe you're coming along and, and learning a little bit more about the Christian faith, and you, and you look and you say, do you know what, they're, they're not, it's, it's a little gathering, uh, and there's not, it doesn't seem that significant. And yet there's the constant reminder that we meet here on a Sunday afternoon and we are connected to generations gone by and generations gone by and centuries and millennia gone by and we are a continuation of the church which was founded by Jesus and a group of, of disciples and has grown and been sustained against all human odds against all possibilities, it has continued. And it still looks weak. And it still looks a mess. And it still look, is made up of people who are unfaithful and failing. And yet, through that, God is still doing his work. Saw a fascinating interview. You might have seen it. Uh, Bono being interviewed about faith and about his belief in God. Uh, and he acknowledges that that's one of the things that really jumps out to him. The idea that something in human terms is so weak, and yet it carries on. It continues. Paul speaks about the gospel, the good news of the message of Jesus, being contained in what? In jars of clay, he says. In weakness. That's where it is. This whole story of Nehemiah is about a man and a group of people on a mission to do good work with a vision to rebuild the walls of a city and reestablish a kingdom, and yet they are weak and frail from beginning to end, and yet they do the work. And here we've got to a point where the walls are built, the gates, gates aren't quite on, and Nehemiah at that point continues to face opposition. 
In fact, we will characterise the, the opposition that he faces in, under three headings. Major opposition, murder, treason and mutiny. There's the three. Murder, treason and mutiny. That's what he's facing as they put the last bricks in place. You would have thought, wouldn't you, here we've got the, the three uh, arch antagonists to Nehemiah being mentioned in this first, chapter, uh, first verse. Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, they're, they're named at the beginning uh, and they, they featured right the way through. I mean, you, you say, come on, the walls are now built, you've, you've seen that the job is done, and yet they don't give up. They don't give up. Let me just say to you, if you are thinking about the idea of becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, and you think that that is the point where everything sort of turns around and life becomes easy, it is not the time when life becomes easy. The, the, the point at which it seems as if the job is done is the point at which it seems as if the opposition ratchets itself up to a whole other level. Why? Why is that? Why is there opposition at this point? Because it is not just human opposition. That's what's going on. There are two layers. There are two levels to opposition. If we believe in God, if we believe in the idea of a, a, a supernatural God outside of our human experience in terms of our, our visible senses and our hearing senses and the things that we see in this world, save for Jesus, if we believe in that God, then the, that God also communicates to us that there is an evil opposition to him. And the story of this world and the story of the Bible is about the ongoing victory of that good God against all that opposes. And in the work of Nehemiah, on the face of it, we see Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem, and yet behind the scenes we see the spiritual, supernatural opposition to God. And it carries on. And the spiritual battle that we're in carries on. And it continues to be a ratcheted up offensive against those who believe. Murder. Verse 2. It's all built. Sambalat and Geshem sent him a message. There's been, there's, been bat, there's been conflict going on. There's been threats going on. Now we get this. Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain, uh, plain of Ono. That's, that's almost, the way it's written is, is almost conciliatory. Let, let's, let's be friends, it seems. Let's talk about this. Let's find a way forward. That's how the message comes across. So he sent a message back. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? There's a real danger in our Christian life, in our walk, in our desire to be engaging that we lose sight 
of the objective that we are about. That was Nehemiah's danger at this point in time. Four times that message comes to him. Repeatedly. Come on, let's meet. Let's meet. He knows that they are threatening him. I'm carrying on a work of four, four, four times. They sent me this message and each time I gave them the same answer. He knew that he was under threat. He knew that they were seeking to take his life. This was a ruse. It was a desire to knock him off course. But it is presented in a way which is just so appealing. So much potential, it seems. And yet so much possibility of losing sight of what he's actually about and taking a sideways path. There is a brilliant story. You'll hear me just banging on about this over the years. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and Pilgrim's Progress is written by a guy called John Bunyan hundreds of years ago. He writes it in, um, in Old English, so if you can't handle that, read the kids' version. But there's a point which is equally a good, little Christian's pilgrimage, really accessible, tells the story of this man, Christian, who's on a journey to, uh, to the city of God. And he reaches a point where the pathway, this one pathway that he's sticking to, is really difficult. And when it becomes really difficult, there's this style into a nice, easy field to walk alongside. And he can see the pathway, and it would be so much easier to walk on the nice, easy grass compared to walking on the tough pathway. So he jumps over the fence. And he walks alongside the way of the king. I guess that's a bit like Nehemiah was threatened to do, wasn't he? The possibility that Nehemiah could, could find a way for it to be easier and yet not staying focused on that which he was about. But what Christian doesn't realize is that gradually, little by little, little by little, the pathways diverge. And he ends up well away, lost, and taken captive in Giant Despair's castle. That's, that's great, isn't it? Giant Despair's castle. Uh, all of the language of Bunyan is significant. Because when we take a pathway which gradually diverts us away from the tough walk, we end up where? We end up in despair. And our life is threatened. That's the reality that Bunyan recognizes. That the Christian walk, the commitment to the walk that we are called to, is not easy. It's not easy. But the alternative is murderous. And that's Nehemiah's challenge at this point in time. Do I go and do I, do I drink tea? with these three men and settle our differences and lose sight of the work that I'm to do and place myself in a murderous situation. And he avoids and he keeps, on, he keeps his eyes fixed on the job at hand. I, I would say that 
inner desire, and, and you need, we, we need to take very careful steps so that I'm not misunderstood. In a 21st century desire to help the gospel to engage in the world around, which is really important because the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus has spent far too long just kind of hidden away and isolated and disconnected in many people's situations, there is a danger that what we do is we take a step which is not so much committed to the goal and to the mission, but subconsciously is about making it easier in our life. And the danger that we face with that is a gradual step-by-step divergence which leads us to murderous despair. There's Nehemiah's danger. I think Paul sums this up really helpfully. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this. He he, He kind of helps us to focus in on this. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's his goal. He knows what he's about. How he does that, to the Jew I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became like one under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, those who aren't Jews, he says, I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. There's Paul's Paul's kind of book-ended statement. He says, my commitment is to save some. And I end it with a continuation of a commitment to save some. And the means by which I do that is I behave the way... I need to behave appropriately for those who are Jews, and I behave in a way which is appropriate for those who are not Jews. But my single-minded commitment is to build the wall, effectively is what he says. Don't get sidetracked. Don't stop building the wall, that's the other danger is that we actually stop building the wall of the message of the gospel uh, and we kind of hide away and make sure our, 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 our equipment doesn't get pinched. You know, we could do that and that's no good either. But don't get sidetracked because it's a murderous endeavor. Second one is treason. The fifth occasion... On then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and you've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let's meet together. 
So if the first is friendship that's murderous, the second is the accusation of treason. Remember where Nehemiah has come from? He's come from the court of Artaxerxes. He's been sent as governor to Judah with the blessing of the king to build the walls. And four times Sambalat has tried to get him to a, a coffee house to have him bumped off. And on the fifth occasion, he sends a letter, which is an open letter. Fascinating, that word, an open letter. In the ancient world, you wrote letters and you sealed them so that the, the recipient of the letter would know that they are the first to read that letter. You break the seal and you read the letter. This is an open letter. It's effectively, it's a letter which is a bit like... Um, it's a bit like a, a Facebook post or a tweet or a blog writing or something like that. Something which is written in the newspapers. Something which is out there. Really broadcast. And it is a false accusation. It's a false accusation. One of the things that we would recognize and what the New Testament recognizes is that spiritual battle will at times result in false accusations. It will. If we expect that living a life which is faithful to Jesus is going to be easy, then we're, we've, we're misrepresenting what it is to be a follower of Jesus. If we think that the opposition, opposition is always only fair opposition, then we lose sight of the wiles of the true accuser. We lose sight of it. We don't understand truly the way that we will be challenged. We will be misrepresented. There are times, there are times, just to clarify that, there are times when the church is deserving of what it's accused of. That's true. There are many times when the church is not. It's not reasonable to accuse the people of God for what they are accused of. And this is one of those occasions. Nehemiah sends him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. <laughs> we said right at the beginning, didn't we, that Maya understood where her real strength was, the fact that she was, in the, she was a child of God. Nehemiah understands what his real strength is. My hands are not strong to do this work. And therefore, I pray, now strengthen my hands. There is an acknowledgement, I think, in Nehemiah's words there in his prayer. I am weak. If, if I listen to these accusations, I'm going to be scared. That's normal. So strength comes not from me in a kind of stoical way, facing it out and saying, that's not what it really is. It's not really like that. Um, and therefore I'll, I'll build up this strength from inside of me and be able to take it all. 
There have been occasions for many people in this room where the challenges of life have been understood to be deeper than just challenges of life. But they have been real spiritual opposition. And let me just say this. At those moments, it is not unusual to feel defeated. It is not unusual to feel weak and helpless. In fact, it is those very moments where it is a plea to say, now, strengthen my hands. When we feel as though we've got to a point where we have no strength ourselves, where we are done in, where the battle has beaten us, where we have no possibility of carrying on on this step of faith, then that is the moment where we say, now strengthen my hands. Christian took a sideways path. He ended up in giant despair's castle and he's being beaten up day and night in the dungeon. And then he remembers something as he prays. A key which was given to him. What's the key? The key that he pulls out is a key of promise. It's called the key of promise. What does he find it does? It unlocks every door from the dungeon all the way out of the castle. Why? Because that's the promise that the king has given to him. See, his strength doesn't come from inside of himself. His strength comes from outside of him. And it's the same for us today. In those moments of battle, in those moments of falling on our knees, helpless, feeling as if the next blow is rained in on us, is going to finish us off. It is not from inside of us that the strength comes. It is from outside of us. Treason. The third one, first two have been, in a sense, they've been straightforward because they've been attacks from outside. The third one is really insidious because it's attack from inside. Verse 10 says this. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. And why would Nehemiah do that? We don't know anything about this man, but the fact that Nehemiah as governor goes to see him specifically would suggest, number one, that he's a prophet, He's a bearer of the message of God and he has some historical credibility that Nehemiah goes to listen to. I guess we understand that from what he goes on to say where he talks about later on, he says, remember those prophets that are not faithful. Remember them, God. Verse 14. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. What tragedy. What tragedy. Two attacks from outside. I think this, actually, is probably the hardest attack to bear. Because it comes from inside. And it is incredibly subtle. 
but it is, because it is an attack from inside, it is mutiny. That's what it is. Murder, treason, and mutiny. I went to his house and he said to me, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, night they're coming to kill you. Now here's Nehemiah with a prophet saying that there's somebody coming to kill you. What do you do? If a prophet says somebody's coming to kill you, better do what the prophet says, don't you? And hide away. Except that Nehemiah is discerning. I would suggest on two levels. Level one. He's been preparing all of the people to not be fearful of the attacks. We've earlier understood that he said, right, you hold on to the the spears and shield while he's digging. And then after a bit, you swap over. And one is arming while the other is, is digging. One's protecting while the other is building. And Nehemiah is being tempted here to not stand at the front. You carry on building, you face the threat while I hide away. And then secondly, who has the right to enter the temple? Prophets. Sorry, priests. Priests have the right to enter the temple. And on two levels, one from a leadership, practical sense, and another from a theological, spiritual sense, Nehemiah discerns, by God's goodness to him, that this prophet is mutinous in his objectives. Why would I do that? Why would I give you the opportunity to say that I am a sinner. That's what he says. Why would I give you the opportunity, a man like me, why would I do that and give the opportunity for you to win? Three levels by which Nehemiah faces the sternest of opposition and yet breaks through. What an incredible story of courage. In a sense, I would suggest that this final one, this final potential to discredit Nehemiah, is one of the saddest. No matter what, no matter where we are, every one of us needs to watch our heart. Because every one of us has the possibility to be a mutinous member of God's people. And that's, you say, what? How could, how can you possibly say that we've got the potential? Jesus turned around to one of his closest disciples, Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. We all have the potential. We all have the possibility of 
misapprehended motives. We all have the possibility of saying things which are positively destructive to the building work. (laughs) And so we watch our hearts. Murder, treason, and mutiny. And yet at the same time, courage in the face of opposition. Is it all just a bit like Maya? Is that what this is this just a vision of great commitment? There's a little tantalizing little phrase that is used in this second accusation, which I think, and we call this series, A Vision Beyond the Walls. Something which says it's not just about the building of the walls. It's about a vision beyond the walls. What's the accusation that's going to land it on Artaxerxes' desk? You, Nehemiah, you're just about to make yourself king. And you're going to get prophets to say, there's a king in Judah. That's what you're going to do. That's what this is all about. You know, the Bible talks about kings. The kings of God's people. And it ends as God's people are taken into exile. But there's there's talk about another king. There's prophecies about a king. And Nehemiah makes it really clear, I am not the king. Zechariah speaks about what the king is going to look like. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, there's going to come a day when the king is going to be really obvious. Because you're all going to say, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, Your king comes to you. Hey, it's great. The prophet is saying there's going to come a day when this wall's built and when the king arrives. It's a bit like Tolkien's, the return of the king. There's been kings all the way back there. When's the king going to arrive? Zechariah says it's like this. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's when the king comes. And the Bible makes it really clear that all of this preparation is, yes it is, for a king to arrive. And the king arrives on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And all of Jerusalem erupts In exactly the praise that Zechariah said. It's amazing. I don't think that everybody in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus went into the city on a a donkey. I don't think everybody got up that morning and for their quiet time they read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And said, oh I'll tell you what. Let's get the palm branches ready and let's get our coats ready because we're all going to cheer the coming of the king because this is what all of this is about. I don't think that happened. I don't think the disciples sent a tweet out that said, this is what's going to happen, so get it ready. No. It was a spontaneous response because 
in Bible terms, here's the king. He's arrived. His name is Jesus. We'd better get him on a throne. And they did. By nailing him to a cross outside of the city. It's the most unexpected enthronement of a king. But that is what this glorious king looks like. And nailed to a cross, suffering king. You say, that's not what he's like now. In some apocalyptic language, John tells us that when he looked into heaven, he saw into heaven, and on the throne was one standing who looked like a lamb that was slain. I can't get that into my head, because lambs that are slain don't stand up and sit up on a throne. But in John's language, he conflates the two, and he says, our king is one who's slain. Our king is one who's sitting on a throne. His name is Jesus. That is the coming of the king. And in a remarkable way, in, a, in an incredible way, I think Sambalat prophesied the coming of the king of Judah. There's many occasions where in the Bible the most unexpected people talk about a king, talk about God's purposes, and there we have it, I would suggest. Nehemiah says, no, it's not me. But the only strength that we can really gain, which can hold us in a spiritual battle, is in the king who was slain on a throne, who then rises again from the dead. If you're thinking about faith in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you. Spiritual strength does not come from inside of you. Spiritual strength comes from the king who was nailed to a cross, who was then victorious by rising from the dead. And my strength comes not from me, but from and in him. A vision beyond the walls. Let's see what's to come in the next few weeks.